morning, guys. Uh, guess what? We have our second Amen Bible study the fall, and we're already behind. Ha <laughs> ha! Doesn't take long, does it? Turn back in your notes from last week, and what we had discussed was uh, obviously who Peter was and why we should be listening to the guy, especially after his massive failures and denying the Lord Jesus Christ and being such a nitwit and idiot uh, in the Gospels. Why should we listen to him? Well, we saw Peter underwent a fabulous transformation, the same kind of transformation that's offered to us, and he becomes the instrument of truth. And we saw that truth is received by ordinary men and uh, who do not seem to be qualified, just like ourselves. We saw all the reasons why he might be disqualified. But then he has one qualification, and that is that he is a friend of Jesus. And that's the same qualification we have. And uh, we saw that we are developed by Jesus. So even though we have the, all these failures, we are radically turned around. We saw that. We saw the truth is a gift of God by revelation. This is peculiar to the Christian approach to who God is and who we are and how we can know him and how we can be sure we go to heaven. It's by revelation. Peter says an apostle of Jesus Christ. We talked about the difference between natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation is what we can observe in creation. What we know in our own conscience is innately. Unfortunately, that information about God is just enough to get us in trouble. We know that we're sinners by that knowledge. But the knowledge of God that leads us to a saving relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, only comes to us through special revelation given to us in the Bible. So God reveals this truth through apostles. And that's where we left off last time. He chooses to do this through apostles and prophets. And if you ask how the books in our Bible get in there, it's because they're authored by apostles or the close associates apostles. Think about it. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mark was a very close associate of Peter. Luke was a very close associate of Paul. John was an apostle. Uh, Acts was written by Luke. Uh, Romans, all the way through Philemon, written by Paul, who was uh, the recipient of a revelation of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and personally commissioned by him. And then you have people like James and Jude, who were half-brothers of Jesus. They were sons of Mary. Uh, and, and we don't know who the author of Hebrews was. Uh, so all the, all the letters of the New Testament are written by apostles or their close associates. If you wonder why certain books are not included, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and all these, those are written much later. They're written from another perspective, not a theistic uh, uh, Christian perspective. They're sort of Gnostic Gospels. They were excluded because obviously they're not written by the apostles and they, they don't tell the same story that the apostles were telling. And they're apocryphal. They're, they're, they're not even uh, real. Uh, it's kind of like being confused about whether the Da Vinci Code should be put right up there with the Gospel of John. Nobody here mistakes that. Just read the two books, you see the difference. And in the early years of the church, the first four centuries, they read those books, and there was nothing close to the canon that was given to them by the apostles. So we receive the truth of God by revelation through the apostles. And if you'll uh, take note of this, we'll see some distinctive things that qualified Peter and Paul and the others to speak to us. This is why we should be listening to them as authoritative voices and not listening to other books as authoritative. They're all good books and interesting. I find the Gospel of Thomas very interesting as a reflection of the religious perspectives of the 2nd and 3rd century A.D. But why do I receive Peter as authoritative? Here's why. 
First of all, he's an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection. And you see that, of course, in the scriptures. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, makes much of that. We're going to get to our text today in just a minute. I'm sorry, I guess we don't have the uh, PowerPoint from last week, so just hang on. This is from last week. And I'm, so I'm going through this outline, and I'll, I'll give it to you if you still have your notes from last week. So we were saying they were uniquely qualified, number one. A, under that, they're eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. So everyone who is, who is an authoritative apostle, through whom we receive the revealed truth of God, is an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Secondly, B, they are personally commissioned by Christ. Christ sent them to the task. And he said to them in John 14, John 16, the Holy Spirit will recall to you the things that I've given to you. So he said he sends them out and uh, personally commissions them to be the agents of revelation and see he infallibly uh, they are infallibly inspired to declare God's word. So the Apostle Paul says, I didn't receive this from men, I received it from God and the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 commends the Thessalonians. He said, you received our proclamation as it is, the very Word of God. So Paul was very aware of proclaiming the very Word of God, the revealed Word of God. And he commends those who receive it as such. And D, they were miracle workers. You see this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul says the very insignia of an apostle. One who has the authority to speak with revelation is one who is able to work miracles. And certainly Peter did that in the pages of the books of Acts, the book of Acts. Uh, we see that Peter was healing the sick miraculously. So these are the things that uniquely qualify an apostle to speak for us. Now, once again, notes from last week. Secondly, we said they are uniquely authorized. And first of all, we know that Christ built his church upon their preaching. We are told in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. So Paul says the church is built on that foundation of the testimony of the apostles and prophets. So very self-consciously, the prophets and the apostles were saying, thus says the Lord. Christ built his church upon them. Jesus said to Peter on this rock, Petros, Peter, I'm going to build my church. The confessing Peter. B, they wrote the New Testament scriptures. In Second Peter, Peter speaks of Paul's writings as the other or, or speaks of Paul's writings and the other scriptures. And Paul teaches us in Second Timothy three sixteen that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Revelation 22 teaches us not to add to the scriptures. So there you have that they were uniquely authorized. They're not only uniquely qualified. Then uh, B, last week's notes, we're almost through here. God reveals the truth through his son. He is an apostle. Said, Peter says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's not just sent by the church. He didn't say I'm an apostle of the church, a missionary of the church. He said, I'm a missionary or an apostle of Jesus Christ, personally sent of him and conveying the revelation that is in Christ. Gentlemen, one reason this is so important is that there is a tremendous skepticism that is being spread abroad on the bookshelves of Davis Kidd and any other decent bookstore 
that suggests to us that you really, even if you believe the Bible is authoritative, you can't understand it. And there's an attack upon the clarity of the Scriptures. So that even if you believe you have an authoritative revelation, you can't understand it. For example, folks will say the human language is so limited and God is incomprehensible. So how do you expect to understand God through the limited human language that's in your Bible? Some will say, look at all the differences of opinion among you. You you Presbyterians and Baptists can't even agree what to do with baptism. You know, you can't even interpret that together. You Methodists and Episcopalians can't can't agree on, on the liturgy. Uh, you can't agree on predestination. Look at all the diversity of opinions. Doesn't that suggest to you there's a lack of clarity in the book? And many other explanations, some, some very philosophical, as to why we cannot get clarity from human language that's in the Bible. But gentlemen, the bottom line is this. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, that He may be known. He did not send him so that we wouldn't know God. He sent him so that we would know God. And in John 1.18, we're told that Jesus Christ exegetes or reveals, displays the Father. Makes the Father known, I think it's translated in NIV. So Jesus comes to, to explicate, to expound, to reveal, to make known the Father. So you can know him. And when Jesus Christ came, He came teaching the meaning of the Bible. He took the Old Testament and He said to the rabbis, you've covered over this book with your own tradition so you don't even understand this book anymore. And Jesus said, it's not what you're saying, it's what, this, what I'm telling you. Now that's called principled truth. That's called revealing truth through words. It's not what you're saying, it's what I'm saying. He said, the rabbis told you of old this, that's wrong. I'm telling you this. You said that adultery was merely a physical act. That's the rabbis. It's not that. What the seventh commandment means is this. It's even less in the heart. So Jesus expounded the meaning of the Scriptures with words. So He revealed the Father in His own person And he taught the meaning of the Father's Word, the Bible, through his own ministry. And gentlemen, he tells the apostles to do the same thing. And you look, you read the apostles, including Peter, and we'll see it even this morning. Peter is taking words out of the Old Testament and concepts out of the Old Testament. He's saying it's not that, it's this. That's called verbal disputation, which means presumably that when we hear that, we understand it's not something and it is something else. And it's the law of non-contradiction. You can't have A and non-A at the same time in the same way. So, what we have in the apostolic revelation, of course, are some difficult passages. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16. Paul wrote some things that are difficult to understand. Oh, really? Very difficult to understand. But by perseverance in our studies, we begin to understand more and more. But as far as the Scriptures are concerned, they are clear. As far as we're concerned, we're a fog bank. We have to fight through our lack of understanding, our lack of adequate intelligence, our lack of learning and study of the Scriptures. And as we grow, we gain clarity. Luther spoke of internal clarity and external clarity. The external clarity of the Scriptures and the internal clarity of our own hearts. And they're both involved as you interpret the Scriptures. 
That doesn't mean the scriptures are always easy to understand. And it doesn't mean we're always going to agree on everything. But, you know, sometimes you can hold up something like this and say, what color is that? And you get five different opinions. And that's the way it's going to be in the church. So when we come to apostolic authority, he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has come to make the father known. And so you should expect your Bible, which is inspired by the spirit and the spirit works through apostles and prophets to convey to you the father and make it known to you through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we should expect the Bible to do for us. And I say just hang in there and keep laboring until you see him face to face. And then, of course, you won't you won't need a Bible. You'll have him in toto. Now we need our Bibles because we learn not just innately, but we learn through revelation. Let's move to our last points here. The truth cannot be discerned solely by reason. When Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and uh, Richard Dawkins attack the Christian God, which is basically, I think, the God they're attacking, you always have to ask an atheist, which God are you saying doesn't exist? <laughs> so... Uh, and the God they're saying doesn't exist is basically the Christian God. Atheism is, is a Christian heresy. It's because we uh, Christians have always valued reason. And uh, we believe in a God who created and who stands over his creation. He's not part of the creation like a pantheist. So these guys are attacking using reason, attacking the being of a God who created and stands over his creation. And basically they are saying you can't prove it. And they're using reason alone. Well, if you've read the books, you've seen how unreasonable they are. I mean, it's ridiculous. This guy, Dr. Dawkins, who's a genius in his field, you know, at Oxford, he just crossed over in the wrong field. I guess that's all I can say. I mean, he just he doesn't make real good sense theologically or or philosophically. Uh, But nonetheless, he's using reason. And what we've said all along, you can't use reason alone. You must use reason. But to know God is going to involve reason and revelation. In other words, God has to make himself known through a decisive act of speaking from heaven because we can't work it up. The Greeks got as Plato got about as close as you can get apart from revelation. He took reason to its ethereal heights, but he didn't get to Christ. He spoke of a logos. Very interestingly, he spoke of logos. And of course, John comes later. Centuries later saying Christ is the Logos. So Plato could get up to the Logos, but he couldn't get to Christ and he couldn't get to salvation by grace because those things are revealed by God. They must be uncovered for us. And then we use our reason to apprehend revelation and to comprehend what we can. You can't get there by reason alone. And secondly, the truth cannot be discerned solely by intuition. This is what the new spirituality is suggesting. Just sit back, get in a lotus position and go, mm, mm, and blank out everything. Blank out your history, blank out your relationships, empty your mind, get out of time, as uh, uh, Elkhart Tolle would tell you in The Power of Now, if you've read that, get out of time and into now. And that's reality. Reality is ahistorical. It is irrational. It is beyond time. What's the Christian say? No. Reality is in history. It's in time. 
and is perceived by the use of the gift of reason that God has given us. And the Christian doesn't trust that he will discern God adequately and sufficiently for his own eternal life through his innate powers. The new spirituality tells you to go within yourself. The Christian says, already been there, done that. I'm looking for you know, plan B. I know what's in there, and I'm not going to find now. I'm going to find a lot of junk. And I, I, I want to find now through Christ. Today is the day of salvation. I want to find real reality. I want to find real love, real meaning in life. So I get outside of myself using innate gifts God has given me to get outside of myself. So the Christian, when he goes into meditation, instead of going mm, and trying to empty and get blank, he looks to the Lord and begins to praise him and meditate upon him and bring him in. So instead of trying to empty one's mind in Christian meditation, we fill our minds with who God is by revelation. So the Christian perceives reality and the being of God and our way to know him through revelation. We can't survive without it spiritually. And that's what we have in the apostles. The truth, thirdly, is only known by revelation, and Christ is the revelation of the Father. So that's the reason that when, when Peter says to us, this is stumbling, bumbling, failure, Peter. When he says to us, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, our ears go boing, and we listen. Not because we think Peter is by nature such a great guy and innately he's going to get us in the lotus position to kind of do it the way he did. No, we listen because Peter is an organ of revelation. He's an agent of revelation of Jesus Christ. So what? Well, first of all, these are not mere opinions, but realities. It's not just your opinion against somebody else's opinion. This is the revealed truth of God. That's the claim of the scriptures. That's the claim of Peter. It's the claim of Paul. It's the claim of the Lord Jesus Christ. That this is an anchor for all of cosmic reality. And that's the reason it's so important to us. Secondly, these are not mere suggestions, but commandments. This is the reason that we're going to come to Peter and what we're being given, we're going to seek to put into practice into our life. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time debating about whether it works for you or not. The reason is I know it works for you. Because it's revealed of God and He happened to have made you. And it's wonderful. It saves so much time. It gets us to the bottom line so much more quickly to be given what we know is the truth and simply put it into practice. You know what? You'll find out later that it's the truth if you're wondering about it. But go ahead and put it into practice with a joyful heart. These aren't suggestions. They're commandments. And secondly, you are not a mere speculator, but a possessor of God's truth. Now, of course, when we're in discourse with people who don't agree with us, and there's some of you in this room that wouldn't agree with, with me or with the Christian perspective. We're going to have a civil discourse. We're going to respect each other's opinions. And in the civil, civic marketplace, I consider my opinion to be just right in there with everybody else's opinion. Well, let me tell you what I know inside. And it's not because I'm smart. It's not because I've been to school. It's because I'm dealing with the revealed Word of God. I know I'm not speculating. I know this is reality. I, I, I don't force you to agree with me. I just know what I know. Because Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So... From last time we saw, this is the good news of having a Bible. We've really got something we can work on. We can really build a life on this. And you can go back for thousands of years and see men who have built their lives on this and see what kind of difference they've made in this world. Now, secondly, we saw, first of all, then, last week, how important it is, if we're going to stand on solid ground, to know what we believe about truth. 
what is truth and where do you get it? And this is what the Bible says. You get it from God through Jesus Christ by his apostles and prophets. There's your ultimate authority for truth. You start there. And you've got to know that if you're going to stand. If you're going to stand in the midst of your business arrangements where other people have different ethical standards. If you're going to stand there in this community, serving in this community where others have uh, other ethical standards, you better know where your standards are coming from, what your warrant for truth is, why you believe what you believe, or you're not going to stand very long. You're only going to stand if you know why you're standing. And that's the reason that first point is so important. But secondly, we come to the second part of verse 1 and, and verse 2 today. We're going to see a very vital issue in terms of how we're going to stand our ground. You're going to stand not only because you know where your opinions came from and where your truth came from, but who you are. Peter knew who he was, and it's a good thing he needed to know who he was, because Peter could have said, Peter, a total failure who collapsed under pressure. Well, we'd have said, poor guy, you know, I sympathize with him, but you wouldn't take his word seriously. But Peter, the failure, stands up and says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, unashamedly. And he just knows who he is. And he's an apostle, not because he worked it up, but because it came down to him. Jesus condescended to him to make him an apostle. Peter always was humbled by that title. He knew he didn't deserve it. Let me tell you, you don't deserve the titles you get either. Neither do I. And we're going to see a bunch of them right here in these verses. And let's be sure we understand who we are before we go standing our ground out there in the public and in our families. Let's look at these verses where we'll just start at the very beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here we go. To God's elect strangers in the world scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood grace and peace be yours in abundance. Gentlemen, there's about a month's worth of stuff in there, but let's make the best of it. First of all, we want to see this. God's people are peculiar people. You said, I thought they were pretty funny people. I thought that I thought that's exactly what they were. They're peculiar. Well, peculiar means distinctive. They're unique people. They're distinct from the rest of the people on the face of the earth. These people are really different. And the first thing that we see, Peter says about them, they are chosen. If you are in Christ, you are a chosen. Or the word here is elect. You are God's elect Now, what's really interesting about this is that the term God's elect was used in the Old Testament to describe the Israelites. And, you know, even to this day, we speak of the Jews as being God's chosen or elect people. That's exactly the kind of language that they would have been used to in their own day. Look, for example, at that text in Psalm 105, if you want to, or just listen to me. Psalm 105, verse 6 where the psalmist says, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones or his elect ones. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. So he says, descendants of Abraham and sons of Jacob, who are the chosen ones. Now, why is this so unusual for Peter to say this? Well, it wouldn't be so unusual, perhaps, if he were writing to primarily a Jewish audience. 
And there is scholarly speculation about to whom Peter actually is writing. And especially because he uses language like this that seems to be applicable to a Jewish audience. And so some folks say, we think he's writing the synagogues in Cappadocia and Bithynia and so on. But hang on just a minute. Let's look at some verses which make it seem fairly clear that Peter is writing to Gentiles. Look, for example, in verse 18 in chapter 1. He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. Look at this. From the empty way of life, this is 118, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. He says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. This is 4.3. What pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Doesn't sound like a message to the synagogue, brothers. No. He's writing primarily to a Gentile audience. I know this doesn't shock us like it would in the first century. He's writing to some folks up in northeast Turkey. And it's it's kind of a circular group. It's kind of like a mail deliverer would take this letter if you look at the order that he mentions there. He's writing these guys up there. They were in in Jerusalem at Pentecost uh, from those cities, many of those cities. And they went up there, obviously, to establish the church. We're not even sure Peter had ever been there. Peter writes them, and there are a bunch of crazy Gentiles who used to have sex with prostitutes in the temples and bow down before the idols and, you know, and have a totally different worldview. They were lost in debauchery. He says to them, you're the chosen nation. This is wild. And what we're going to see through Peter's epistle is that this is just the beginning of this kind of language that's being given to guys like us. There may be some of you with some Jewish blood in you, but most of you come from those northern ravaging tribes uh, in northern Europe. Some of you came from the tribes... In Africa, we all came from a bunch of wild people. We were the Gentiles, all of us. Not all of us, but probably almost all of us. And we're being called the chosen nation. This is astounding. And Peter is saying something to them about themselves. They used to think, they used to hold, you know, the Jews used to hold the Gentiles in absolute contempt, Peter included. And you remember how in Acts chapter 10, Peter had to be convinced that the gospel even goes to people like us. And he was on the roof and three times the sheet came down with these foods on it that you're not supposed to eat as a Jew. And the boy said, eat. And he said, never, Lord. Once again, Peter, great at no, Lord. Three times Peter has to go through this to get it. And then Cornelius, who'd been told by the Lord, he's a Gentile centurion. He comes, he's on his way. And about the time Peter gets that vision, here's here's the centurion, Cornelius, knocking at the door. And the voice says to Peter, go with him. Don't hesitate to go with him. And Peter goes with him, preaches to Gentiles. He wouldn't have even gone in their house if it hadn't been for the vision. And he preaches and the spirit falls. And he's just amazed. And he goes back and defends it in Acts chapter 11 among the apostles and says, surely repentance has been granted to the Gentiles. It's amazing. So Peter had to be taught. Now, Peter, for most of his life, as you know, was the apostle to the Jews. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. 
But Paul ministered to Jews, too. Obviously, he went from synagogue to synagogue. Peter also ministered to Gentiles. And here we go. Peter, the apostle to the Jews, is now ministering to the Gentiles. And he got it clear. You're the chosen nation. Amazing thing. That means that they are elect. Now, leave your finger in First Peter. Promise we'll come back. But go over to Ephesians chapter 1, which you'll find on page 1904. And Paul picks up the same language. Paul says, pray, this is uh, Ephesians 1, 3 on page 1904. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. That is, it's according to him, not us. We choose him, but we choose him because he first chose us to the praise of what? His glorious grace. Until we get this, he says, you don't understand his grace. You can't praise him adequately. But now we know that we're chosen by his will from all eternity so that he gets all the praise for his grace. And that's what grace is. It's undeserved, unmerited You say, well, don't I add just a little bit? I mean, my repentance and faith. Okay, glad you asked. Turn back a few more pages to Romans chapter 9. And here you get to the end of Romans 8 and everybody's saying, well, what is this? If if God saves by grace, by just choosing people, not according to their ethnic lineage, what about his promises to the Jews? Because he called them the chosen nation. He said they were elect. And so you're telling me now that some of them are rejecting God and they're rejected? So what happened to his promises? Is God a liar? That's the question he's got to answer in Romans 9. And look how Paul answers. Verse 6, 9, 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. Now look at this. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Israel. Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it was Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of Abraham too. But all the sons of Abraham are not sons of Abraham because it was through Isaac that he said, through your offspring I will bless you. And then Isaac had two sons, didn't he? Jacob and Esau. All the sons of Isaac are not the sons of Isaac. Because Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And they're both sons of Isaac. Well, it's true of Jacob, too. He says, not all Israel, not all Jacob is Jacob. Very important point when we think about Israel and the promises of God in the Old Testament. Now, if we read on, we see this unconditional aspect of God's choice in verse eight. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children. That is, it's not through ethnic lineage. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return in Sarah. That is a particular wife of Abraham with a particular son. She will have a son. Not only that, he goes now to the next generation. But Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born. Now look at this. Or had done anything good or bad. So before they were born or had any grounds to be favored or not favored, before they could make any claim themselves about their favor from God, 
long before that, before they were born. And as Paul says, before the creation of the world. And then look at the next phrase. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. That is, it's before they do anything so that you understand what election is. It is regardless of one's ethnic identity or moral performance. Wow. In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. That is, Esau will serve Jacob. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Now catch this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul is anticipating the objection. So, is God unjust, or, or, or literally the word there, is God unrighteous? And Paul says, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, let me tell you what righteousness is. Righteousness is God declaring His own name. God revealing His own character. And do you remember the story He's saying here to them? Do you remember the story when Moses said, God, I want to see Your glory? God said, Moses, you kind of overdid it with that request because you'd turn into toast if you saw my glory, but I'll tell you what I'll do. That's the Wilson translation, by the way. He says, you go hide in the cleft of that rock and you can see my backside. I'm so glad the Scriptures didn't say you can see my butt, you know, as they go by. But you can see my backside and I'm going to put my hand over there so you won't see me until you see my backside. Now, so you won't see the fullness of my glory because you wouldn't be able to survive. And you wouldn't either until you get to heaven. Then you'll be able to survive. You'll be, you'll be equipped to see His glory. But now you can't. So what did, he, what did God declare to Moses when He revealed His character and His glory as He was passing by? Here's what He said. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. In other words, God reserves for him right, Himself the sole right of being favorable toward those who don't deserve it. And he reserves that right for himself alone. That's his glory. Paul says, is he unjust? Is he unrighteous? Just the opposite. That is his righteousness. That he has the sole prerogative to be gracious. And that's what grace is. It's all in him. And our choice has come out of his love for us. He gives us the power to believe. You made a choice if you're following Christ. The choice to believe and to turn from the idols of this world. Not perfectly, but genuinely. And the reason you made that choice, says the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is that even faith is a gift of God. Your decision is a gift as part of God's grace toward you. And the reason He gave you that gift is because the Spirit came into your life, which is a gift of God. And the reason you have that gift is because the Christ, the Son of God, died for you on the cross, you particularly. And the reason Christ died for you is because the Father elected you and chose you from all eternity. This Trinity, I'm telling you what, is irrepressible. And He just composed no unfinished symphonies. He starts a work and He brings it to completion. That's what, Paul is, that's what Peter is saying here. And, and Paul here in Romans 9, if you read on, uh, well, we, we'll, stop, we'll stop at that point right there for now. But you see, Paul is showing us that this choice... First of all, it's unconditional. It's in God alone. Secondly, you can't bound it by any ethnic or national boundaries. Now, on, on the three, you know I love concentric circles, uh, those of you who have been with us for a few years. Here are some more circles. If you look on the left, you see this is the general idea that you have the nations of the world 
And then you have the elect nation. And then you have the elect within the elect nation. If you look at that second circle, here's the way it works out in the Old Testament. You have the nations of the world, you know, the Hittites and the Egyptians and the Syrians and all the rest. And then you have Israel, the elect nation. But then within Israel, you have an elect remnant. And all you have to do is turn to a place. You can make a note of this if you want to, like Isaiah 10, verses 20 through 22. And there Isaiah speaks about the remnant being preserved, the remnant coming back out of captivity. So the remnant principle is throughout Isaiah. You find it in Amos and some of the other prophets. And even Isaiah, at the calling of Isaiah, he is told, so I'm supposed to go you know, preach to these people until their hearts are hardened? Yes, says the Lord. You go preach to them until their hearts are hardened. Why? It's an act of judgment. So what's going to happen to Israel, Isaiah is wondering. And God says there will be a little stump left. One-tenth. Kind of like a tithe. That's the remnant. And if you look at the right-hand concentric circles, there's the New Testament idea. You have the nations of the world. You have the church, which is the elect nation. The church, Jews and Gentiles, is the elect nation. And within the church, you have the elect. Are we going to presume that every person who ever raises their hand and says, I want to join your church, is an elect person? No. Paul says, all Israel is not Israel. All of a geopolitical entity or all of a particular association are not necessarily the elect. And we'll find out what the elect, what they're like. But you see that what, what Peter is doing is moving from that middle circle to the right-hand circle. And he's saying to the nations of the world who've come to know Jesus Christ, you have gone in to those internal circles. You've become part of the ancient church. Church is used in the Old Testament over 150 times in the Greek translation. Well, it's in the Hebrew too, the original Hebrew. Kahal. That's the word for church or assembly. Church is not a New Testament word. It's an Old Testament word. But the difference is the church was the nation. Church had geopolitical boundaries in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it doesn't have geopolitical boundaries. But it's still the church, the kahal. And it's made up of the remnant of Israel with the Gentiles who have been grafted into that remnant through faith so that now we're all one olive tree, as Paul says in Romans 11. That's what he's saying radically to these Jewish Christians. Look, guys, let's realize who you are. You belong to the ancient people of God so that now when you read Isaiah, when you read the prophets as we did last year or year before in Minor Prophets, that's your history. Those are your people. That's your church. That is a word to you, not to some ethnic group somewhere else. It's to the people of God. That's what's being said when he says we are chosen. Now, look what he said. Now we're back to First Peter. And see that he says to God's elect strangers. Now, that's a strange word, no pun intended. Why would he say we're strangers? Well, this word could be translated strangers or sojourners. I would prefer sojourners. We are sojourners. We're travelers. We're strangers in the world. If you look in Genesis 23, 4, when Abraham is describing himself, he says, we're aliens and strangers, sojourners. I'm a pilgrim, he says. That's the way he describes himself. I came from Ur of the Chaldees. I'm going to the promised land. And it's not mine yet. I'm in between. And then you, you find also that we are, you know, in, in Psalm 39, the psalmist, David himself. David, that's after they'd gotten to the Holy Land, established the kingdom there. David says, we're nothing but aliens and strangers. So in the Old Testament, the people of God had a sense of being a people on the move, particularly when they were taken out of Egypt 
and going on their way to the, out of slavery in Egypt on the way to the promised land, they were sojourners through the wilderness. And that language stuck with them. Especially when they were in exile later on in 586 B.C. when they were taken off to Babylon, they knew they were sojourners, not tourists. There's a difference. They were sojourners and pilgrims in another place. So in a sense, it's kind of like, you know, if you're traveling somewhere and you've got your passport, you know, and I could go in here. Well, there's there's a visa to India and Jordan, Egypt. Okay, I'm in those countries, but I'm American citizen. Don't mess with me. (laughs) You know, it used to be you could say, don't mess with me or the Marines will be on your shore in the morning. I can't say that much morning anymore, but unless you're in Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, But here's the passports worth something. When I'm in India, I'm not a citizen. I'm a sojourner. I'm traveling through. Here's what Peter is saying. He's using this Old Testament language to first of all say, you are the ancient people of God now, you crazy Gentiles. But realize what it means to be the people of God. You are not resident, established resident citizens. You are aliens. You're not immigrants who are eventually going to get your status. You're continually sojourning, pilgriming. You have no home here. And you know what? These two words go together. Because when you're elect, you are a citizen of the Jerusalem in heaven. You're a citizen of heaven, says the Apostle Paul. That makes you a stranger and an alien here. Those two go together. And unfortunately... Most of the men that, that we will deal with today, and most of the time in our own minds when we're at our worst, we are citizens of this world and aliens when it comes to a relationship with God. And Peter is saying it's just the opposite. And this is how you're going to live this life, as elect sojourners. And, of course, Abraham saw himself the same way, Moses and David And Peter is intensely concerned about the lifestyle of these people who are faced with all kinds of temptations. And until you know who you are, an elect stranger, you're not going to be equipped to face the world. Look at chapter 2. We'll get to this later. But in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your souls. So you must learn to cultivate this. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're passing through. But now look at what else he says about us. We're scattered. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We've discussed this largely northeast Turkey. But the word scattered is a very, very important word. It's the word from which we get the word diaspora. The dispersion. Diaspora is a word that's used for the Jewish community, particularly after their exile to Babylon in 586 B.C. They were called the diaspora because they got dispersed. And so when you look at the Jewish community, even today, they will speak of themselves as in diaspora. Coming back to their physical Jerusalem over on the other side of the Mediterranean. Here's what Peter is saying doesn't have anything to do with the physical Jerusalem on the other side of the Mediterranean. That physical Jerusalem has no theological significance at all. There's a new dispersion made up of Jew and Gentile who belong to Jesus Christ. And from where are they dispersed? From heavenly Jerusalem, 
which is coming down at the end in Revelation 21, 22, as we saw three or four years ago as we studied that. We're dispersed from that city. We're in diaspora throughout the nations of the world. Now, the Gentiles would never have thought of themselves as a dispersion. They had Jews in their community whom they considered to be part of the, their diaspora. But Peter is saying to them, no, you're diaspora. You're the scattered people. Now, what difference does that make? In chapter 5, verse 13, Peter speaks of himself as writing from Babylon. Interesting. Now, we think he means Rome. There are other evidences that Peter's writing from Rome. He calls it Babylon. Now, this gets really interesting. When the Jews were in Babylon, they were the dispersion, and they got a letter from Jeremiah who was writing from Jerusalem. Peter is now writing from Babylon to all of us who are in other Babylons, Babylonians, uh, writing about being in dispersion. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, you'll find one letter in particular that stands out as a letter to God's people in dispersion and what they should do about it. And that's Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah sends a letter from Jerusalem to the Jews in dispersion who are wondering, how should we live here? We're away from the city of God. We're, we're out here. We're aliens. We don't belong to this country. What do we do? And here's what, here's what Jeremiah says. You seek the peace and prosperity to the place the Lord sent you. So when we're scattered, we're not just waiting to be gathered. We are waiting to be gathered, but we're not just waiting to be gathered. We're living meaningful, missional lives in Babylon, wherever we are. And we are seeking and praying for the peace, the shalom, and the prosperity of the city to which God has taken you. And if you live in Memphis, Tennessee, ultimately you are here because God put you here. And He put you in diaspora in Memphis to seek the peace and prosperity of this city. That's our purpose as aliens and strangers. That's how we differ from tourists. And most Christians act like tourists. What does a tourist do? Well, we travel around, we observe, we see things, we get all the fun we can get out of it, go to all the five-star hotels we can go to, all the beaches and mountains, and see everything that we can see and just drink it in like a fire hose, and we say we've been to those places. Well, you've been to them as a tourist, a consumer. We're not consumers. We're pilgrims and sojourners who are seeking the peace and prosperity of every square inch where God puts us. And that's what Peter is saying to these Gentiles. Your, your life mission has completely changed. Because now you're God's elect, aliens and strangers in the world. You're not seeking the pleasure of the world as your primary agenda anymore. You are seeking to function as diaspora, as salt and light scattered in this world. It's an amazing thing that he's telling them. Now, secondly... God's people are privileged people. He says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You are foreknown by the Father. Now, some people would think that foreknown means this, that God chose us because he had foresight. And he looked down through the corridors of time to see who would believe in him. And from all eternity, he chose those who he saw, foresaw, would believe in him. Brothers, this doesn't mean foresight. Of course, God foresees. We know that he knows the future. That's not what Peter is saying. He is saying that God chose you from all eternity because he knew you. What does the word know mean in the Old Testament? It means to love. You know your wife, for example. Or in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 2. I'm sorry, Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Amos says, 
speaking for God, I knew you. God says to his people, I know you. That means I love you. God forechose you. God selected you, pre, predetermined you. He chose you out of all, uh, all the peoples of the world because he loved you from all eternity. Now, if you wonder how that can be, look at chapter 1, verse 20. It's not translated as such in the NIV, but here you find another usage of the word foreknowledge. Verse 20, it says he was chosen before the creation of the world. Folks, that's not what the that's not. A, I don't think a very good translation. He was foreknown. Before the creation of the world, who is he? Jesus Christ. Jesus was foreknown. That is, he's foreloved by the father before all creation. Here's what Peter is saying. In the same way that Jesus Christ is the beloved foreknown son of the father, you are too. And you were loved before you were ever conceived. You were loved before you ever asked for forgiveness. In fact, you asked for forgiveness because you were loved. And God gave you that gift of asking him. And in chapter 11, verse 2 of Romans, you see the text mentioned there. If we, if we had read on in Romans 9 and come up to chapter 11, he would say, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So the elect remnant within the elect nation are those who are foreloved and foreknown. And he's saying that about you. Secondly, we're set apart by the Spirit. Now, when we speak of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, there are two aspects to our sanctification. One is called definitive sanctification and one is progressive sanctification. And normally, in Christian circles, when we speak of sanctification, we mean progressive sanctification. That is, we're getting more like Jesus all the time. We're growing in our faith. We're being sanctified or being set apart increasingly. And that's an that's a an accurate use of the word. But I believe the way it's being used here and the way it's dominantly used in the New Testament is what we call definitive sanctification. That is, you are once and for all set apart, which is what sanctification means. You're once and for all set apart from common to holy use. Like Paul speaks of the children of believers in First Corinthians seven and says they're holy. That is, they're once and for all set apart for holy use. Your children. Why? Because they belong to you and you're set apart and there is a setting apart that goes with that. And here the, the Apostle Peter is saying you've been set apart. And then thirdly, we're bound to the son. You see the work of the Trinity here. We're bound to the son. Why do I say bound? Well, first of all, we are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. We're chosen for the very purpose that we would bow down to him and set it to the idols. So we make our commitment to him. And we are chosen for that purpose, that we would be obedient to him. But then notice we're chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. You say, what's this sprinkling all about? Well, he's talking about the mode of baptism. I'm only teasing. <laughs> he's talking about. <laughs> I just want to wake you up a little bit. Just when you Baptist, you know, we're sitting there thinking, I wonder what he's really talking about here. Exodus 24 talks about Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. When the people of God, the chosen people, who were aliens in the wilderness, became a nation at the foot of Mount Sinai. What did they do? Moses read the covenant. They said, we will do the words of the covenant. And then he took the blood of the animals and he sprinkled it over the people. What was the meaning of that? The meaning of it was that their sins were washed away by the blood that was shed by these animals that were put to death in their place and that they were bound to God in covenant by the blood of those animals which foretold the blood of God's own Son, the mediator between God and men, who would eventually bind us in covenant to Himself. So that by the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ, we become His men. 
He's saying, don't you see how the, the Trinity has been working from all eternity and working in time to bind you to himself as the people of God? That's who you are. That's the reason you go out of here and stand up for the truth and for what's good and right. Thirdly, God's people are placated people. Here you get a benediction, as it were, a blessing. And this belongs to us. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. We are placated by God's grace. Our salvation is by the gift of God. What we have received is from God. And you'll find in Peter's letter here, as we'll study in the weeks ahead, grace suffuses this letter. It's all of grace. Anything that we do that is pleasing to Him is by His grace. Anything that we believe that is correct is by His grace. Any of us who put our faith in Him and go to heaven forever is by His grace. Any of us who are used effectively in somebody else's life, it's by His grace. Any of us who are able to serve our families and love them and nurture them and disciple them and develop them, it's by His grace. It's all by His grace. And Peter says, grace be to you. God's grace be to you. And he wouldn't just say that to anybody. He says, I'm saying it to you because you're God's elect strangers scattered throughout the world. And you're the ones who have a right to His grace, if you will, because you are His people. You don't have a right by merit of your own deserving but you have a right because you're his people, bound to him in covenant. He gives you his grace. So grace. And then he says peace. We are placated by God's peace. What, what does this peace do for us? It removes God's anger from us. We were Gentiles. We were following the, the ways of the world. We were bowing down before idols. We were serving ourselves. We were exalting ourselves. You say, how could I ever pay for that? You can't. Well, how could I ever be at peace with God? By the blood of Jesus Christ who wipes away all your sins. And you are now at peace with God. You have shalom with God. That's massive. He says to these Gentiles, peace be to you. You say, well, okay, I got peace with God, but I'm still at war with myself. Let me tell you about this shalom. You not only have objective peace with God, but it cleanses your conscience and sets you free. Brothers, look, if you're laboring under the guilt of your own past sins and present sins, I've got some really good news for you. You're innocent in Christ. You can best be set free from those guilt patterns and the fear of judgment and condemning yourself. You're free. You've got shalom. And Peter says, peace. To you in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but peace with your neighbors. In a world that's broken and at war with itself, God's elect strangers are those who scatter throughout the world and show how to have peace with brothers and sisters. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that the blood of Christ has broken down the greatest walls between men. And if the wall between Jew and Gentile can be broken down to make this church of Jew and Gentile, surely black and white can get together. And we're absolutely resolved to do it because God has given us His shalom and that means total love with no distinctions among men according to ethnic groups anymore. It's over. We love our neighbors. Peace. And not only that, but we'll find one day we have peace with the cosmos when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the child shall crawl over the hole of the asp and righteousness and peace will cover this world like the waters cover the sea. Peace. Shalom. Total cosmic order and love, and goodness, and kindness. And as God's elect strangers, I'm telling you, that's what is coming your way. And lastly, we're placated by God's abundance. We can't even begin to describe how great this grace and this peace really is. We're going to study First Peter. We're going to find out what difference it makes in your marriage, what difference it makes in the workplace, what difference it makes in the way you think, what difference it makes in the way you speak, what difference it makes in the way you act. But, gentlemen, there's no way we can exhaust the meaning of God's grace and peace to you. Not because you deserved it. 
but because he chose you for reasons that we don't know. If you could explain it, it wouldn't be grace. The reason you can't explain it is because it is grace. There's no explanation for it. The only explanation is this. God loves. It's all in him. That's the only explanation we can find. God, we thank you for your love, your grace, your peace. Now go with us. May that abundant blessing reside in each of our hearts and dwell with each of us that we may be the instruments of grace and peace in the world to which we now go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.